Good morning. Take your Bibles and turn to Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8. Last Sunday we saw how Stephen in chapter 7 told a true story about the history of Israel in front of the Sanhedrin. Just gave them their history based upon the scriptures they had. He concluded that story by telling them that they were just like their forefathers, always resisting the Holy Spirit and the work of God. And the result? They drove him out of the city and stoned him to death for telling a true story. Hmm. Well, those who stoned him had laid their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. Saul of the Roman city of Tarsus was the ringleader. When we read that those who stoned Stephen put their coats at his feet, that does not mean that Saul was the coat check boy. (laughs) It means he was the leader. You recall when the different disciples sold lands and brought the money, the proceeds from that, what did they do? They laid that at the feet of the apostles, even as they laid their coats at the feet of Saul. He's not the coat check boy, folks. He's the ringleader. And so Stephen stoning set off a wave of persecution that was led by Saul. Saul began to ambush house churches, drag disciples off to prison. He believed that this was his God-given work. He believed God had sent him to do this. These people were claiming that Jesus of Nazareth, who had died on a tree, which we refer to as a cross, they were claiming that this man had risen from the dead and was the Messiah. Well, Saul knew the Old Testament scriptures, and as the book of Deuteronomy teaches, anyone that is hung on a tree is cursed of God. So if this man is cursed of God, there is no way Jesus of Nazareth could be the Messiah. And so these disciples were leading people away from the law of Moses. And Saul was going to do his best to put a stop to it. Now while this persecution looked like a bad thing, it turned out to be a good thing. It turned out to be a blessing. The church finally began to take the good news outside of Jerusalem as Jesus had commanded in Acts 1 verse 8. You'll recall that Jesus said there that you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem in all Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest parts of the earth. And now the gospel is on the move. And so in Acts chapter 8, Philip takes the gospel to the Samaritans. He receives an incredible response there. Now, you remember that the Jews and Samaritans really didn't have dealings with each other. They were pretty much enemies. Because when the Assyrians, who had deported the Jewish people out of Israel in 722 B.C., left some of the poor people in the land. When they repopulated it with some of their own people, they intermarried with the Jews that were left behind. And so the true Jews now down in the south considered the Samaritans as half-breeds. And they would go out of their way to avoid them. They would cross the Jordan River, go up through the Decapolis to Galilee, just so they wouldn't have to cross through Samaria. But Philip takes the gospel to the Samaritans and receives this incredible response. 
men and women are being baptized into Christ. And he's having such a successful ministry there that Peter and John were sent by the apostles to go check things out. When they arrived in Samaria, they prayed for the Samaritans that they might receive the Holy Spirit, which I believe that refers to the miraculous gifts of the Holy Spirit that was imparted through the laying on of the apostles' hands. I believe they would have already received the indwelling gift of the Holy Spirit when they were baptized into Christ, as it would say in Acts 2.38. But in the midst of this successful ministry in Samaria, an angel of the Lord calls Stephen, not Stephen, Philip, calls Philip to go south to a desert road that leads to Gaza. I mean, he's having a great ministry. And now he's going to a deserted area. And of all things, he doesn't realize that he's going to be sent to one man. But he goes, and there he meets a man from Ethiopia who is returning from worshiping in Jerusalem. He is a treasurer for Candace, the queen of the Ethiopians, and he's reading the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. Now let me tell you, scrolls were rare. And you had to be wealthy. You had to be a person of means to have one. And maybe he had purchased it for his queen. I don't know. But nevertheless, he has a scroll. And he's reading from it. And in that culture, reading was almost always done out loud. And so when Philip goes up and hears what he's reading, he asks this Ethiopian who was a eunuch, he asks him if he understands what he's reading. And the Ethiopian eunuch says, well, how can I unless someone explains it to me? And so Stephen joined him in his chariot, told him the good news about Jesus, because the eunuch was reading that portion of Scripture in Isaiah, chapter 53 in that area, about Jesus' death. Well, as Philip shared the gospel with him, they came to some water. The eunuch said, look, here's water. Why shouldn't I be baptized? Isaiah didn't say anything about being baptized. How did he know to do that? Well, the answer is obvious, right? Philip taught him. He taught him the gospel, told him what he needed to do. And so he orders the chariot to stop. Philip baptized him. Afterwards, the eunuch goes on his way rejoicing. And in the Lord's plans, as he has unleashed his church upon the world, the gospel has now gone from Jerusalem into Judea and Samaria, and now it's going to Ethiopia, to the remotest parts of the earth. Ethiopia at that time would have been like us using the phrase, from here to Timbuktu, all right, to the ends of the earth. And so you come to Acts chapter 9, and it begins by saying, meanwhile, back at the ranch, <laughs> no, meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. But his life is soon going to change dramatically. The legendary football coach of the University of Alabama, Paul Bear Bryant, once gathered all of his coaches together for a meeting. And he told them, there are different kinds of boys out there. We don't want just any of them playing football at Alabama. There's one kind of boy that gets knocked down and stays down. 
We don't want him at Alabama. There's another boy that gets knocked down and gets up. But if you knock him down again, he stays down. We don't want that boy at Alabama. But there are some boys that you can knock down and they get up. And you can knock them down over and over and over again and they will always get up. One of his assistant coaches piped up, that's the kind of boy we want at Alabama, isn't it, coach? No, said Bear Bryant. We want the boy that's knocking everybody down. Well, everyone knows that the key to victory in college football, college basketball, in the pros, whatever, is recruiting. And early on, we learned the importance of picking a good team just from playground sports, right? You remember the time, you know, where we'd have two captains out on the playground and we'd divide up in teams. And they didn't care about hurting anybody's feelings. Who did they pick first? The best. Okay, yeah, you pick the best people first. And then you move down from there because the key to success is getting just the right people. I mean, even the Marines don't want just anyone. They want the few, the proud. You remember the commercial, okay? So it's somewhat surprising who God wants on his team to evangelize the world. If you were selecting missionaries in the first century, how many of you would have picked Saul of Tarsus? None of us would have. No way. He's the church's number one enemy. Saul had studied under the renowned Rabbi Gamaliel. He was the valedictorian of his class. He was the brightest hope for leadership among the Pharisees. He supported the crucifixion of Jesus. He had led the troops at the assassination of Stephen, as we've seen, and he became the high priest point man for the systematic elimination of Christians and the de-Christianization of Jerusalem. And he wasn't content with just merely purging Jerusalem of Christians. He wanted to end the movement completely. And so when he heard that there were Christians disciples all the way up in Damascus, he took action. Damascus, the capital of Assyria up there, a large strategic capital city about 150 miles away, and it could easily become another strategic stronghold for Christians, for this Jesus sect. And so Saul obtained extradition papers from the high priests, that would require the Damascus synagogue leaders to turn over to him any disciples they knew of so Saul could return them to Jerusalem for trial. Saul was the last man anyone would ever choose to be a Christian missionary. The very mention of his name caused disciples in Jerusalem to get sick to their stomachs. They had witnessed him breaking up home churches, okay, and leading their friends and families off to prison and maybe even to be executed. They wanted God to punish Saul, not recruit him to become one of their number. But as we've seen over and over again, God doesn't choose as we would. He had a plan for Saul's life that no one would have imagined. And so as Saul nears Damascus, he's knocked to the ground by a bright light. Jesus calls him by name in chapter 9, verse 4, and says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? 
Saul recognized the voice as divine, but didn't know who exactly was speaking to him. To his way of thinking, he had been serving God by fighting God's enemies, so in his confusion, Saul asked what? Who are you, Lord? This is one of those times that I wish we could hear it audibly to know how he said it. Did he say, who are you, Lord? Or did he say, who are you, Lord? Or did he say, who are you, Lord? It means something different in each way you say it. And I don't know how Saul said it, but he received a nightmare answer. I am Jesus, whom you're persecuting. You talk about a paradigm shift or a wake-up call. I mean, when Stephen claimed to see Jesus standing at God's right hand as he's being stoned to death, Saul helped kill him, but now Saul's going to see basically the same thing. He's forced to accept the fact that he had been acting as God's enemy. And Jesus didn't just identify himself, then he gave Saul orders. Saul was to go into the city, wait for instructions. So as best he could, Saul obeyed, but he discovers that when he gets up off the ground, he's blind. Now actually, Saul had been blind for a long time, but he didn't notice it because his eyes worked. (laughs) But he had been spiritually blind. And now the man that has strutted the streets of Jerusalem, leading disciples in chains, is led by the hand like a little helpless child into the city that he intended to purge the Christians. For three days, Saul waits for instructions from Jesus. During that time, he couldn't eat, couldn't drink. I doubt if he slept very well. He had three days to rethink everything in light of the startling fact that Jesus was risen from the dead and that he was the Son of God and that he was the long-awaited Messiah. Conversation doesn't always go, or conversion, conversion doesn't always go as fast as it did with the Ethiopian eunuch. Saul had to work some things out in his mind. You don't, you don't put conversions on an assembly line. There is no one-size-fits-all when it comes to conversions. And his conversion is definitely a lot different than the Ethiopian eunuch. But finally, Jesus decided it was time to relieve his tension. And Jesus sent another vision to a local disciple named Ananias. Acts 9, verse 10. He gave him some very detailed instructions about where to find Saul. Told him that Saul was expecting him. Saul had seen Ananias coming in a vision. Ananias might not be a refugee from Jerusalem, but he had heard all the horror stories about Saul. And he probably wants to beg off this assignment, but Jesus won't let him off the hook. Saul wasn't just being converted, he was being called to a mission. God had chosen to use the worst enemy of the church to be the most important evangelist in history. Just as he made others suffer for Jesus' name, now Saul would suffer for Jesus' name as well. And against every instinct he had, Ananias went to Saul, laid hands on him so that he could receive his sight, 
And then he baptized him into the kingdom of God. Well, as Luke tells the story here in Acts 9, God's plan began to work immediately because Saul began to preach Jesus right there in Damascus to the astonishment of everyone. I mean, the people in the synagogue in Damascus, they knew why he'd come, and they were stunned at this change. How could the enemy of Jesus now be preaching Jesus? And in short, the Jewish leaders now planned to do to Saul what Saul had planned to do to the Christians that he had went after. No one is hated like a traitor. And now that's how the Jewish leaders viewed Saul. They plotted to kill him at the city gates as he left town. But Saul found out and escaped through the window of a house built into the city wall in verse 25 of Acts 9. But where could he go? I mean, Jerusalem was the worst place possible because in Jerusalem, he not only had old enemies, the Christians there, but now new enemies as well. And yet, Jerusalem is exactly where he went. He wanted to testify to Jesus in the very place where he had opposed him. And at first, his fellow believers wouldn't accept him. Well, can you blame him? What would you have thought? This guy's playing us. This guy's trying to infiltrate us, gain all kinds of information so that then he can go after us like he's never went after us before. That's what they're thinking. But finally, Barnabas, the son of encouragement, he takes the risk, he befriends Saul, and he convinced the apostles to accept him as a true brother in Christ. And thus Saul took up where Stephen left off, the one that he had helped to kill. And then again, Saul had to flee for his life, and so he returned home to Tarsus. And Luke concludes this story by reminding us that God knows what he's doing. Acts 9 verse 31 says, Then the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace. It was strengthened and encouraged by the Holy Spirit. It grew in numbers, living in the fear of the Lord. God's biggest enemy was now a supporter with a great future. And without Saul's leadership, the opposition to Christianity began to die down for a while. But it still brings us back to that question we still have to wonder why would God pick Saul to take the gospel to the Gentile world? Sometimes people point to Saul's background. He was highly educated. He was articulate. He was a Roman citizen. He knew the Greco-Roman world quite well. He was also passionately devoted to God. He just needed a course correction. But Saul didn't think any of these qualities were the reason that he was chosen. According to 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 through 17, God chose Saul to prove that he could save and use anybody. Listen to these words, 1 Timothy 1, beginning in verse 12. I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has given me strength, that he considered me faithful, appointing me to his service. Even though I was once a blasphemer, and a persecutor, and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly, along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. 
Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason, what reason? The reason that he was the worst. For that very reason I was shown mercy, so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his unlimited patience as an example for those who would believe on him and receive eternal life. Now to the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. God chose the worst sinner to prove that no one is beyond redemption. And because of Saul of Tarsus, there's not a single one of us here today that can say, I'm too far gone. And in addition, the conversion of Saul remains one of the most powerful evidences for the resurrection of Jesus. I mean, how else do you explain this great turnaround if Jesus hadn't risen from the dead and appeared to Saul and spoke with him? Numerous skeptics have been converted to Jesus through the centuries by the change in Saul of Tarsus. And that's typical of God. God's always worked that way. He's always worked through the least likely people. We've seen it time after time. Think back through the Old Testament. He chose Abram and his wife Sarai, an elderly, infertile couple, to populate a nation of people. Why would he do that? God regularly chose the wrong child, the younger son, to be the heir of the promise, like Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and Ephraim. God would also use the youngest or the outsider or the rejected people to do great things like Gideon and Jephthah and Rahab and David. And again and again, God has chosen the least likely people to do his will. Why? God wants to make sure we understand who's really at work. He is. And as Saul later writes, as the Apostle Paul, 2 Corinthians 4, 7, but we had this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. God works, God's work in Saul's life teaches us several important truths. First of all, we never have a right to be proud or boast that God uses us. If God does something great with you, it's probably because you were weak enough to be useful. And again, Saul later wrote as the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 1, 26 through 29, Brothers, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. God loves to do the unlikely and the impossible so that he will get the glory. And that's not because God is proud. It's just because we need to see God for who he is for our own good. We should never take credit for converting anyone. That's God's work. And he does that in spite of us. In Jesus, there's no room for boasting except in our weakness and his grace. Here's the second thing. No one should ever feel they are beyond God's ability to save or use. No matter what you've been or what you've done, 
God can use you if for no other reason than is proof that he can save anyone. And the more that he has saved you from, the more your life testifies to his grace. The most powerful argument for the Christian faith is change lives. Change lives by the power of Jesus. Here's the third thing. We need to use our testimony when we're sharing the good news. We've all got a story to tell. So tell your story. Tell how you came to Christ. Saul's testimony is told three times in the book of Acts. Even though Luke is very selective and renowned for his abbreviated style of writing. Saul tells the story himself countless times, just again and again, in his letters as he wrote as the Apostle Paul. And Saul's story reminds us that conversion is not someone's encounter with facts or ideas, it's someone's encounter with God, someone's encounter with Christ. It's a relationship. God can use your story to draw people to him. And finally... We should never consider anyone too far gone for God to save. I mean, who do we consider good prospects for conversion? Is it the kind neighbor that watches our dog or gets our paper when we're out of town? Is it people that need just a little church to complete an admirable life? Well, make no mistake, God, God loves those people and he wants those people, but God's also calling people that'll make the church squirm and maybe even protest. Surely not him, Lord. Don't you know what he's done? Lord, that person's dangerous. We could get hurt. God does his best work through people that we deem beyond hope. So don't ever give up praying for someone. You never know when God may rock their world and bring them into the kingdom. Because the person that you think is unredeemable or unsavable may be the one that God chooses to be a special servant for his glory. Because if Saul of Tarsus can become a great missionary, God can do anything through anyone, including you. That's the message. I don't know what decisions God may be prompting you to make this morning, but this is decision time. And if you have a decision to make for Christ, if it's a public decision, you can come down front and meet me down front. Maybe there are private decisions that you need to make. What's the next step that you need to take in your journey of faith? Whatever that next step is, take it. Take it with the power of Christ behind you and the encouragement of the Holy Spirit within you. Let's stand and sing.